0: We're going to be in multiple scriptures this morning, uh, but if you want to go ahead and get to the first one, just open up your Bible to the first few pages and and get to Genesis chapter one, because we're going to start in the beginning. Um, Normally, I would not give this kind of disclaimer. However, I think it's appropriate here. I I have the privilege of pastoring seven-year-olds and 70-year-olds and everything in between. And some of y'all might be older than 70. That's okay. Uh, I, I like being your pastor, too. Um, But unfortunately, that means certain topics that we would talk about in here, I have to talk about a little bit more delicately because of young ears. And this is one of those topics. So I am not going to be as forefront, not because I don't think we need to address this. We do. That's why I'm addressing it. But um, I I need to make sure that young ears don't hear more than they need to hear. So I, I will be speaking of this a little bit more vaguely then I might otherwise do it. That is not for fear uh, of, of repercussions. That is simply because of young years, okay? So having said that, this morning we're going to talk about the God of gender identity. When God made the world, he made it according to his plan. Genesis 1 tracks the story, how he creates light and that it's good, how he creates... Um, the expanse above the waters, the skies, how he creates dry ground, how he puts vegetation on that ground, stars and and hosts in the sky, how he makes birds to fly in the air, fish to swim in the waters. And all of it is good. God's design, his perfect plan working out through creation. He gets to day six and he creates animals that walk all over the ground. You got centipedes and millipedes with so many legs, we didn't even bother to count them. We just just name them hundred legs and thousand legs because nobody wanted to count all the little legs. Cows, horses and pigs. Giraffes is huge, look like a horse that's been uppercut because the neck just stretches elephants and whales. He creates all these things and all these things are good. But then when it comes time to create man, to create humanity, he doesn't just make it like everything else. You see, God made us by his perfect plan too. And that perfect plan involves us being male and female. He says it this way in Genesis 1 then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, now pause there for just a second. And I've talked about this multiple times in this church. I've preached on this particular passage when we were doing a study of the early of uh, the early chapters of Genesis, the beginnings of all these things. And we talked about how God made man in his image, male and female. We talked about the fact that we carry the image of God and though we are terrible image bearers because of the sin that's in our lives, we still have some of the image of God within us. I've talked about before in addressing biblical manhood and biblical womanhood and what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman, how God created us and how each of us in, in each of our genders, in each of our sexes, we portray different attributes of God that the other just isn't quite as good at portraying. Men. Men portray this protectiveness this willingness to sacrifice whatever it takes for the good of someone else, someone especially that he loves. That's a character of God. That's part of God's character to give whatever it takes of himself for those whom he loves. It's also part of the character of God to be nurturing and gentle. Think of a mother with her baby. That's part of the character of God too. The physical strength, that men have? Most women aren't as strong as most men. That's why when you hear statistics of things like uh, uh, the fastest woman in the world was beaten by more than 470 high school boy athletes running the same race. The world's record, women's world record can be beaten by more than 400 guys in high school in various track and field events. Why is that? Well, men have physical strength. Our muscles are toned for it. We, we are taller, we're stronger, we have better uh, muscle mass and, and those things help us be stronger. Now, that's not to say every man is stronger than every woman and that's not to say women have no strength. It's just the way that God made us. In fact, I'll, I'll, I, I will tell you this, women have strength that men do not have. Just ask my friend whose sister had a baby this week. She spent two days in labor. I said, dude, if you picked up this building and held it with one hand, you still wouldn't be as strong as her. That is nuts. But it's something women can do. God has gifted y'all with things that we can't do. And God has gifted us with things that you can't do. And that's a good thing. God made them male and female because males show a side of God that females can't show. And females show a side of God that males can't show. God made us the way that he did in his perfect plan. He created us, male and female, to show his glory. That's why we work better together. That's why kids that grow up in multiple parent homes where there's a father and a mother do much better than kids that grow up in any other kind of home. It's not because there's some sort of systemic oppression. It's just because having a mom and a dad better prepares kids for life. God made us male and female and he did it on purpose and his purpose is perfect. It's good. Sometimes we want to think women can do anything men can do. Men can do anything women can do, but that's just not the case and it doesn't need to be. Just because the man is stronger doesn't mean that he should bully the woman. Just because the woman is more emotional doesn't mean that she can manipulate the man. There's no hierarchy here. There might be a position where the, and there is in scripture, where the man is the head of the home, but that doesn't mean the woman has less value. That just simply means she has a different role to play. And God did this on purpose Because he knew, he knew when he created us that this would be the way that would best show his glory. Our problem is, though, that we pervert and we reject God's plan. God made us male and female. And ever since, we have been rejecting our roles. Look in the garden. You see Adam. Instead of taking the lead, instead of telling the serpent who's boss, instead of, well, crushing his head, Adam sits by idly and lets the woman take the lead, and then when he does participate, he goes along with what she does, rejecting God's plan. More than just that, though, we have been rejecting God's plan ever since. We have been perverting God's plan ever since, and and the fact that we do this, and the fact that we do it so easily just shows how bad things have gotten for us, Uh, the author of Judges wants to make this very clear from the outset. He starts the book and they pick up right at the end of, uh, of the book of Joshua. And at the end of Joshua, the Israelites have come in and have taken most of the land, but there's still some peoples, still some groups that they haven't gotten rid of. And God begins to to work with his people. He, he wants them to be able to conquer all the land. But the fact is, they pervert his plan. Verse 16 of Judges chapter 2. Then the Lord raised up Judges. See, these people had been in, in all kinds of dire straits because they wouldn't do what they needed to do to cleanse the land of all the people, just like God had told them. And now they're in trouble because now these other peoples are oppressing them and they're crying out to God for help. So the Lord raised up judges. God says, all right, I will give you the help you're asking for. Lord raised up judges who saved them and out of the hand of those who plundered them, yet they did not listen to their judges. For they hoard after other gods and bow down to them. Instead of going after the true God, instead of saying, you know, hey, we were wrong. We messed up. We need to make sure we're serving the true God. Instead, they go after all the other gods. Do you remember in that series in Deuteronomy, one of the stresses over and over and over again is that we are to have no other gods. Why? Because they'll destroy us. Watch. They, they went after the other gods. They bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge. And he saved them from the hands of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved by pity, by their, to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. Sounds good, right? The days of the judge, they're going to follow after God. But what happens right after the judge died? Whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. No wonder God often calls this people a stiff net people because they won't stop their destructive behavior. They keep polluting, keep perverting, keep rejecting God's plan. And boy, is that more true. Boy, is that so obviously true in the gender ideologies of today. Again, not to be too specific for young ears, But the whole basis of all of these ideologies, all of these pronouns, all of this I can do whatever I want to do kind of attitude is a perversion and a rejection of God's perfect plan. But you know, before we get too judgmental on them, we might need to look in the mirror. I don't agree with everything that Russ Moore says. Russ Moore is the former president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, the Southern Baptist Convention. He was also a professor at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. I don't agree with everything he says, okay? Make that clear. There are some things that I think he gets wrong. I think he gets this right though. Look what he says. All sin is weird and perverted. The fact that any of it, especially our own seems normal to us, is part of what we need the gospel for. You see, it's not just that people who are doing all these kinds of things over here are perverting and rejecting God's plan. We are in our own sins. Every sin we commit, whether it's coveting or whether it's idolatry or whether it's, it's chasing after some gender ideology and make ourselves something that God never intended us to be, or whatever the case may be, whether it's anger or lust, or pride, whatever it is, it's a perversion of God's perfect plan. All sin is perverted. So before we can sit there and say, this person is perverted, we better look in the mirror and say, so am I? Because the fact that we can live with any sin at all shows just how perverted we are. God's a holy God and his plan is good when we reject it in any way, when we when we turn away from it, when we pervert it and twist it to our own desires, we only stand to hurt ourselves. So what do we do? Well, I think first we repent of our own perversion, right? I think that's pretty clear. Does anybody need me to elaborate on that? No, we all need to repent. But what do we do? What do we do for that person who's struggling with this? See, because I don't think we're just called only to condemn. There needs to be some condemnation brought down. Certainly their actions need to be condemned, but but what about the individual who's going through this, who's suffering through this, who's confused by this, who is led astray by this? What do we do for them? Well, I think what we need to do is we must demonstrate both grace and truth to those enslaved by gender ideologies. Grace and truth. It's an interesting combination, isn't it? I, th- I, I, I seem to remember... I seem to remember that those two words going together. Can, can y'all think of someone who might have grace and truth? Someone that we may have heard of maybe, I don't know, maybe some long time ago. Maybe we heard a story about someone who was full of grace and truth. Does that ring a bell with anybody? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. I remember it from the King James, so... Sorry, doesn't match the screen, that's okay. Jesus, the one full of grace and truth. Grace and truth, what does that mean? Well, you can't have truth without grace. There's plenty of truth without grace, it's legalism. And legalism will deny anybody for any sin whatsoever, except for mine, you know, because mine's not that bad. Theirs, oh, theirs is terrible. We can't be like that. At the same time, we can't have grace without truth because grace without truth in really grace, is it? Oh, it's okay. I'm okay. You're okay. We're all okay. Let's just hold hands and sing kumbaya for me. That's not grace. You know what that is? Willful ignorance. What one person called invincible ignorance. You know, Jesus was full of grace and truth. He had both. And we have to demonstrate grace and truth to those who are captured by sin, whether it's these kinds of sins that we're talking about this morning, or whether it's completely different kinds of sins, you know why? Because we were captured by sin. You're child of God. You were once enslaved by sin. Now you're not anymore. We must show the same grace and truth that were shown to us. And that, that leads me to where I just want to spend a little bit of time this morning. Turn in your Bibles with me to the book of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, this is um, one of the later letters that Paul writes. He is close to the end of his journey when he writes 2 Timothy. And as you can imagine, this is the the sequel to First Timothy. Timothy is a young man. Paul had nurtured him up uh, uh, from his from his days of his youth. As a, as a young man, Paul had taught him what he knows. He had taken him on missionary journeys. He had set him to pastor in churches, so that so that Timothy could could do the work after Paul had gone had left and gone to other places. Timothy was one of the ones that was staying behind, cultivating the ground, seeing the gospel produce its fruit and helping the church to grow. He was pastor at Ephesus for a while, in fact. And you can see in first Timothy, some of the things that he's dealing with. But in second Timothy, Paul really wants to stress that you've got to finish this thing well. You can't start well and then fall off. You've got to finish well. And so he tells him that you need to be a workman. Who is, uh, who is approved, not ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. He tells him to, to be, um, to be a, a vessel that's used for honorable things, not for dishonorable. You know, cause in a house, you got two types of things. You got certain things that you use for specific purposes, and then you have things that you use for everyday use. He says, you want to be the one of the ones that's honorable use. You want to be a vessel that's good for the honorable things. So cleanse yourself from the dishonorable. Don't get in to all of the quarrels and, and all, of the, uh, all of the ignorant controversies that just make things worse. And then he says this in chapter 2, verse 24. He says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. We have here a picture, I believe, of how we can show grace and truth to those enslaved by sin, especially the sins of these gender ideologies. First, love them like Christ. Did you catch it in verse 24? From 2 Timothy 2, 24. He shows us to love them like Christ. First of all, whose servant? The Lord's servant. Does that mean we get to pick what we do and how we do it? Does that mean that we have the liberty to make whatever decision we want to make? Does that mean that we get to feel about that person however we want to feel and act on our own feelings? No, we're the Lord's servant. And part of being the Lord's servant is serving the Lord. And we do that by being like him. We do that by conforming to his image. We do that by doing what he does, by loving like he does. But he goes on and he says, must not be quarrelsome. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, not looking for an argument. Boy, I'm gonna tell you, I know so much stuff. I am so smart and it is so easy for me to forget that I do not know everything. And so that not being quarrelsome, that's hard for me. Because man, when somebody says something wrong, I just want I just, I to just prove them wrong. Now, I know none of y'all struggle with that. That's just me, I'm sure. But we can't be that way. It's a struggle. It's a fight. That's one way I pollute God's image is, is by trying to fight people instead of trying to win them. But we must not be quarrelsome. Instead, kind to everyone. That word kind has the image of a mother caring for a child. There's nurture, there's compassion. I once had a boss who prided herself in being passionate for the work she does. And I had to tell her one time, your employees don't just need passion, they need compassion. We need compassion for those who are lost, y'all. We need to care about them. We need to love them the way that Christ loves them. You probably have already memorized this. I bet you memorized it in the King James. I did. And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven thee. Just like God forgave you in Christ, so you ought to be forgiving of one another. Well, when you put it like that, sure brings it home, doesn't it? Love them like Christ. However, we must also tell them the truth. You cannot have love without truth. Jesus was full of grace and truth. He wasn't just full of grace. Otherwise, he, if he was not full of truth, he wouldn't have been full of grace either. You see, it requires both. We have to love them, but we also must tell them the truth. We must show them how God has made us to be and how they are tearing it up. We can't just hide that from them. We can't just pretend they're okay. We can't just pretend that God glosses over it because he doesn't. And how, how, tell me, how do you come to the place of confessing your sin before God if you never hear the truth that you're a sinner? It can't happen. We must tell them the truth. We cannot be ashamed of the truth. People compare truth to a lion. It'll defend itself. Just let it out of the cage. Now, that doesn't mean you sick a lion on somebody, love them like Christ, but tell them the truth. He he makes this point in verse 24, able to teach. The Lord's servant must be able to teach. You know what that means? You got to actually know the truth and how to share it. Then he says in verse 25, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Correction, you know what that means? You got to tell someone where they're wrong. You can't correct something if you don't tell them where they're wrong. Think about it. Y'all went to school. You got grades on your test, right? Right? Did did the teacher just tell you your grade? Or did they give you a chance to look at your paper? So so good teachers will give you a chance to look at your paper. You know why? Because they're good teachers. Yeah. So you can see what you did wrong. Where did I mess up? Where was my problem? This is where you went wrong. Here's what you should have done instead. But you can't do that if you don't mark the problem wrong. If they don't give you the grade. I had one professor in in seminary that would not return anything back. And then after the semester was over, finally sent me a package in the mail of everything I turned in with all the marks. Well, great, that doesn't do me a bit of good now. I'm already done with the class. I saw my grades somewhat along the way, but I had no clue how I was doing. Because I didn't get feedback. Y'all, we got to tell them the truth. We got to let them know where they're wrong. Now, it doesn't mean that we're proud about it and ha ha, I'm right and you're wrong. It doesn't mean that we shove it down their throats, but we do need to tell them. That's why when churches refuse to address these issues, they see the church as irrelevant. Well, the church must not have anything to say. Let me go to someone else. You want to know why this is so prevalent in our culture? Because we haven't addressed the issue. We haven't addressed it from the pulpit. We haven't addressed it in the pews. We as a church have not done our duty. We got to do our duty. Love them like Christ. Tell them the truth. Third, call them to repentance. What good is it if they know the truth if they don't know how to apply it? Call them to repentance. It's not just enough to tell them you're going to hell because of your sin. They need to know how not to go to hell because of their sin. They need to know that there is a God who loves them, who gave himself up for them, and who is willing to forgive them of their sin if they will cry out in repentance to him. We must call them to repent of their sins, turn from their wicked ways, and do what God has commanded. Verse 25, correcting doesn't just mean showing you where you're wrong. It also means how to be right. See, I can chastise and show you where you're wrong, but it doesn't help you unless I correct and show you what is right. We must call them to repent of their sins. Now that means a totally different lifestyle. That means they can't live the way they're living now. They have to change, but we need to call them to that. We need to call them to not stay where they are, but move beyond it. Proverbs 11.30 says this, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life and whoever captures souls is wise. God says it's wisdom to capture souls. And what he means by that is that it's wisdom for us to go get them out of the depths of despair and out of the slavery to sin that they're in and call them out to repentance in faith in Jesus Christ. He doesn't just want us to shun them and tear them away. He doesn't just want us to tear them down and call them hellions and, and, and tell them what bad future awaits them if they don't repent. We need to also tell them how to come to God. Psalm 51. I love Psalm 51 because I need Psalm 51. David says, create in me a clean heart O God and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and lead me in life everlasting. After pouring out his heart to God immediately, he says this, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. God calls us not only to tell them the truth, but to lead sinners to return to God. See, after he repents, now he's in a position to help others repent. And that gets to the last point. We love them like Christ. We tell them the truth. We call them to repentance. Then we help them in obedience. It's a long, hard road ahead. Mr. George has had surgery in his back and in his knee. Two surgeries in his knee this year. He had one. And then he tore it up, and then he had to have a second one. Then with the back problems, he had to have surgery on his back as well. He's having to learn to walk. Just recently, just within the last couple of days, he's finally gotten to where he can stand. But people are trying, people are having to help him. Physical therapists are having to help him get up, help him move, help him walk. And they'll be helping him for a long time. Several, This last year actually. Some of y'all might know the name Junior Hill. Junior Hill's a longtime Baptist preacher. Junior Hill's quite an old man now, if he's still alive. I don't know if he's passed since this. Last year at the pastor's conference, he was he was the evening speaker. And if you know anything about these conferences, the evening speaker is the main event. They do these sermons all day long. They have different speakers and do Q&As and things like that. And then at the end, in the evening, there is a worship service that the, the entire community is invited to and Junior Hill is preaching at that service. Now, Junior Hill doesn't look like much now. Fiery preacher when he was younger, but he sits in a wheelchair, and as he is preparing to get up on the stage, the stage is several steps high, so it's probably about this high off the ground. There's no way you can get a wheelchair up there, and there's certainly no way that an old man with a walker that's normally in a wheelchair can get up there on his own. They have this wheelchair lift, this church. And so these couple of guys kind of gather around him and they help him stand up get him onto the lift and hold him steady as the lift raises him up to the level of the safe. And they help him get up. And he's slowly making his way to the pulpit. He's hunched over, difficulty walking. He's holding on to the pulpit. And he's not raising his voice. He's just talking from his heart. And after a while, he says. He knocks over his cane. He hung the cane that he was using to help him walk on the pulpit. And he knocks it over. He says, I'll oh, just, just leave it there. Might be me in a few minutes here. After a little while, he says, you know, I'm, I'm starting to get a little tired. And they bring him a chair and they help him sit down. The picture of this old man, barely able to move, still preaching the gospel, but all of these other guys around him, helping him up, helping him carry his burden holding him up, guiding him, bringing the chair for him to sit in. That's a picture of what the church ought to be. We ought to be the ones that are gathered around those who need help, whether they're old preachers that are trying to go to their deathbed preaching the gospel of Christ, or whether it's someone who is lost in sin and needs to know how to find Jesus. We need to be the ones to gather around them and help them obey God. That's what we ought to be as a church because they may come to their senses one day. Paul tells Timothy, an escape from the snare of the devil. How many of you have ever known a wild animal to escape the snare on its own? More often than not, it needs help. That person who's struggling with their identity, they need help. Just like any of us who are struggling with sin need help. And maybe the help we need is for just someone to come alongside of us and slap us in the back of the head and say, what are you thinking? Sometimes the help that we need, though, is several of us to gather around and to lift them up and help them do what God wants them to do. Paul paints a beautiful picture of this in Galatians chapter six. He says, brothers, if anyone is caught in transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Y'all, we need to help them bear their burden. We need to help them obey what God has said. We know the right way. God's laid it out for us in his scripture. God shows us. He shows us what manhood and womanhood ought to be. And so for those struggling with those things in whatever form, We need to love them like Christ. We need to tell them the truth. We need to call them to repentance and we need to help them in obedience. That's what we are supposed to do. That's how we fight the false God of gender identity. Question is, will we love them enough to do that? Or will we just shun them in our own pride and pervert the gospel? Father, my heart's burdened because there are so many people that are so confused. They just don't know, and if they know, they reject. And it breaks my heart to see where this is headed. It breaks my heart to see the mess that's going on because we, have, we as a church have failed. We have failed to speak to the issues of our day. We've failed to confront the false gods of our age. We have failed to demonstrate what biblical manhood and womanhood are and what it means to be a human being made in your image. Father, we failed for generations. Father, we start by repenting of our sin. Sorry that we have neglected your word, your truth, your grace. Father, would you lead us like Christ to be full of grace and truth? Would you help us deal with those who are confused, those who don't know what to do, those who are opposed to your design? Would you help us show them the magnificence of your gospel so that maybe in repentance they too will come to their senses and not be enslaved to sin anymore. Father, help us. This is your time. You're speaking to hearts. You do what you want to do. Lead us in the way that we should go. Give us both the courage and the strength to follow you in difficult days. In Christ's name, we ask these things. Amen.